I know Thornton Square. Do you know anyone living there? I used to, not anymore. I wonder who that could be. I know almost everyone who lives there now. We are also very friendly, you know, popping in and out of each other's houses. Uh, what number did your friends live at? I, I'm afraid I don't remember. You know, we had a real live murder there. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we watched the often referenced and... I feel like, incorrectly so, Gaslight, starring Charles Boyer, and who else was in this movie? I mean, Angela Lansbury, but that is not her lead. Ingrid Bergman. Oh my god. <laughs> this movie fucked me up. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I mean, this movie will fuck you up. Yeah. That's what makes the end so satisfying. But this movie's middle half really, is just intense as shit. I wouldn't even say half. I would say, like, 70%. (laughs) Yeah. Ingrid Bergman did, in fact, win Best Actress for this movie. And, like, I was ready to riot in the year of our Lord 2020 if she had not. 2021, but... Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Can it just be 2020 for another, like, 10 days? (laughs) just start clean when we don't anyway that does not have anything to do with this movie and in fact we will be past the point where donald trump is president by the time you listen to this that is true thank god (laughs) and so sadly this episode will be slightly less relevant uh yeah actually so just to give our listeners context we're recording this on saturday january 9th So it is three days from the insurrection at the Capitol. Yeah. I'm really grateful that I watched this film on Tuesday night. I do not know how you watched it on Wednesday night, David. (laughs) Um, you know, it was tough in a way, but it really, like you said, a lot of people reference this movie incorrectly. And I think... There is a real difference between the hold that Trump has over a lot of people and gaslighting people. Because gaslighting somebody implies that they actually believe the bullshit you're saying. Whereas with Trump, I always think part of the game is just his power to yell something that is obviously not true at you. Which is a slightly different thing. We should probably get into this movie's plot so that we can explain why it's slightly different. Yeah, but to be fair, when I said that when people reference this, they're usually doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. Everything that I'd read about it before is that it is in reference to the fact that he turns down the gaslight so that the lights lower and then tells her that it's not what she sees so that eventually after that repetition, she comes to doubt her own perception. That's not actually what happens in this film. And in fact, what we think of as gaslighting is what happens in this film. Right. (laughs) Continuously. (laughs) That is fair. Yeah. I mean, one, there is definitely a like Frankenstein's not the monster thing (laughs) where it's like, yeah, whatever. Technically, you are correct that X happens, but I kind of don't care about using gaslight correctly. But two... It is kind of much more direct and much more interesting 
than I think it is popularly understood. And much more terrifying to watch. Though that does make the ending incredibly satisfying because it is a thing that just does not happen in real life. But we will get there. Yeah. So we start out for the first like 15 minutes going, oh, this is knockoff Hitchcock. We see the fallout from a murder, the murder of Alice Alquist, who is a world-famous opera singer, and we get a little bit of place setting, I guess. Here's the details of this crime that'll be important later. But we also meet our main character, Paula, who, when she is older, well, well, I guess she's Ingrid Bergman from the first scene, which is a little bit weird. And they managed to make her look... 15, 14, really, really young. Which is weird because we just put out, as we're recording this, our For Whom the Bell Tolls episode, where we were like, I guess you just can't make Ingrid Bergman look not hot in her 30s, but in her 30s, because they don't even try. And the character is clearly supposed to be in her early 20s, and they just don't even try to make that happen. No, specifically 19, I think they say. Right. Yeah. And then in this one, it's like, oh, she looks like she's 19. She looks like she is still a teenager in this or a lot of the movie. To be fair, that one scene where she's supposed to be a very young teenager, if that she has a hood on, the lens is Vaseline all to hell and the lighting is very specific. If they had done that through the rest of the film, I don't think it would have worked. That is fair. But it does work in this one scene. Uh, Before we do an immediate time jump, she has been sent off to Italy to become an opera singer like her aunt. And that plot is immediately almost completely abandoned because she has fallen in love with the uh, piano player who is played by Charles Boyer, who... Am I wrong in thinking this is the first time we've actually had him playing a villain? I think so. In the movie that he was in where he killed his wife, wanted to kill his wife, he was driven to that or whatever. It was terrible. Yeah. But this is the first one where he is just straight up a villain from word one. And it works so well. He was made to play this kind of part. Uh, Yeah, Ingrid Bergman is the best performance in this movie, but he is the best cast person in this movie. Like, he is just so perfectly cast for this. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. Because one of the interesting things about Gaslight that I don't think I have ever picked up from popular conversation around it is that you, as the audience, almost immediately pick up that something is wrong. And you spend a lot of time on people going... Hey, something's something's fucked up here. Whereas I sort of always imagined it as like this psychological portrait where you're in Ingrid Bergman's head for the whole movie, you know? And you are for parts of it, but also just the parts where you are are almost unbearable. So if this was a two-hour movie where you were in her head the whole time, you would lose it. Yeah, you're much more in the position for most of it as concerned observer who can't do anything. Who is like, girl, you need to get away from this guy. He is (laughs) fucked up and he is fucking you up and I am worried about you. And there are definitely a few times at the beginning where I thought maybe we're just reading too much into this because I know what the movie is about. But it very quickly becomes obvious. He is constantly humiliating her in little ways but they're constant i mean it's not like every now and then he does something abusive it is 
all day, every day. It is totally relentless. It's just in varying levels as to how bad it is. Yeah, the first couple of scenes, there's some plausible deniability, but once he, like any good con man, convinces her to move back into the estate where her aunt got murdered, then just the gloves are off and he is just terribly abusive, basically from then on. Yeah. We meet a couple of side characters in short order, my favorite being the old lady who listens to too many true crime podcasts in 1944. <laughs> oh, she's terrible. <laughs> who is just an old woman who out and out says, my husband says I'm obsessed with murder and that I just love hearing stories about murder so much and like starts talking to her about her aunt's murder, not knowing it's her aunt upon meeting her. And we also meet Joseph Cotton's character, who is the second best performance in this movie, as a guy who just works for Scotland Yard and had a crush on Paula's aunt before she died when he was like a little kid. Oh, and it's so genuine and wholesome, and you really need that in this movie. <laughs> yeah. But then we get to the gaslighting portion of our film called Gaslight, where he starts being terribly abusive. Again, very quickly, it's like, well, there's no innocent explanation for immediately firing any servant that talks to her without his permission until he gets to that will never do that. Right. There is almost no portion of this film where you're like, well, maybe he's a good guy and we just don't understand what's happening here. You are really by, I don't know, 20 minutes into the movie, you're like, well, 100% he's a monster and he absolutely murdered her aunt. Yeah, but you understand because you see the way that they interact when they're in Italy, why she doesn't immediately run away. Because it is the kind of thing where, for her, we know that this has been a slow kind of frog boil. <laughs> But for us, we only see the very, very end of the beginning of their romance. Right. And for me, actually, the thing that freaked me out very early in the film is right after she confesses to her voice teacher that she is in love and that the person she is in love with is Charles Boyer, she goes and tells Charles Boyer that she's told the voice teacher, but that she needs a week to herself at Lake Como to... Just decide that, yes, she's definitely going to marry him. And there's no question about it. It's just that she wants a week away. She gets off the train at Lake Como after meeting the woman who listens to too many true crime podcasts. And he's there waiting for her at the hotel. And she says, oh, I'm so glad you're here because I missed you so much that I would have called you to come if you hadn't been. But that was the thing that made me go, oh, shit. He is a controlling, manipulative psychopath who cannot let her out of his sight even for this week, lest he lose the thing that he wants. Right. And then the immediate next scene is the one where he tells this long, elaborate story about how much he's always wanted to live in London in a little townhouse somewhere. Where you're like, wow, that's oddly specific. <laughs> and she's like, well, I do have a little townhouse, though it's horribly psychologically traumatizing for me to go there. And he's like, oh, well, then maybe we'll like have my lifelong dream happen some other way. <laughs> right. Um, unless you like want to move past that. 
there is almost no time where you're like, oh, this is a good dude. It does not walk that Hitchcock line of maybe there's an innocent explanation here. You understand from the audience's point of view, both that he is evil and why she would not read that immediately. Right. There's a lot of details in Act 2, and it's weird because they fall into two categories. One is the sort of plot specifics, which I don't think are very interesting. And then there's the gaslight specifics, which I do think are oddly interesting, but are weirdly disconnected from the plot of the film. Right. The plot of the film is basically just that he isolates her. Joseph Cotton becomes increasingly suspicious because he's vaguely enamored with her because she looks like her aunt and is therefore paying attention to her, and in paying attention to her, is noticing that her husband is acting like a weird creep, and then blaming her for it. Yes. And then she is being gaslit into never leaving her home or talking to anyone. But then the sort of interesting stuff there is all of the details about what he does to her to make her feel insane. Like, He takes down paintings from the wall and insists that she did it, and then insists on calling in all of the servants to scream at them and make them all swear they didn't do it, and then forcing her to go look for it where she finds it in the most obvious place in the world. And he goes, well, then that proves it. You took it down. Well, and the time that we see that, she says, because this is where it was the last two times that you said that I did this. Yeah. The way that he goes through this whole scene is so methodically humiliating because he brings in each servant and makes a very big production out of grilling them about it. And at one point makes one of them swear on and kiss a Bible while keeping Ingrid Bergman there to watch all of it. And it's so incredibly uncomfortable and it's very clear that, well... There's one servant that I'm not sure if she is in on it or what the deal is. If she just is like, rich people are crazy and whatever. (laughs) Yeah, let's go into Angela Lansbury. Because I think it ends up being in service of this movie that it's Angela Lansbury. Because it is yet another thing that kind of unmoors you. (laughs) Angela Lansbury has the thickest Cockney accent, is flirting with him. So it's like young, hot Angela Lansbury with a Cockney accent where you can't get a read on what her morality is. And you're like, okay, am I going insane? Because there are times where I think, is she in on this? Or is it just that she is flirting with her rich boss who flirts back with her and thinks that she's going to get something out of it? Yeah. And it's never cleared up. No. You get the sense that she's just flirting with her rich boss because she's always flirting with somebody, but it isn't ever cleared up, which is a thing that I find interesting is a lot of characters in this movie do things that aren't necessarily in on it or not in on it, but you just never quite learn what their motive is. Like, neither of the servants, do you understand what their motive is by the end of the movie. No, but the older lady who plays the, I guess she's the cook. Yeah. It seems to be a little kinder. Because <laughs> she does end up being, well, th- hmm, no, actually. Yeah. I just realized in my head I have recanonized her as going and getting joseph cotton the detective but no he comes in a totally different way 
Yeah. It is unclear if they also feel threatened by Charles Boyer or if they are in on it or if they're just like, I'm a servant, so whatever the master of the house says, I'll just say, yeah, okay, sure. (laughs) One of the things that I think probably makes this kind of a frustrating listen if you haven't seen Gaslight and spoiler See Gaslight if you feel up to it. If you feel that you should not watch a very good movie about an emotionally abusive man, good. Trust that instinct. Don't watch this movie. Otherwise, watch this movie because it's very good. Which I mention only because one of the things that is a very good portrait of how he is emotionally abusive is... All of the ways that he is emotionally abusive are so slight, they sound like when people complain about their roommate, where you have to go into so much detail that you're like, well, how is this psychologically traumatizing? What's happening? There's noise upstairs. He told me I took his watch, but I don't remember taking his watch. I think he just dropped it himself. And it's like, well, okay. No, he puts it in her purse. He puts it in her purse and then grabs her purse an hour later And is feeling it because it's like a soft fabric clutch at this event and then grabs her purse and takes it out and she starts crying in the middle of this event. But it's like the 10th time that he's done something like this to her in as many days, hours, I don't know. (laughs) Right. A thing I think about a lot is in one of the best written episodes of television ever, which is Blink from Doctor Who, which single-handedly got a guy to executive produce that show for five years. But there is a very small bit in Blink where a character is just a video store clerk and just yells apropos of nothing, go to the police. Why doesn't anybody just go to the police? Which inspires the main character to actually go to the cops and talk about the weird supernatural thing that's happening to her. But this is a movie where you totally understand why she doesn't go to the police. Everything he does to her is terrifying and horrible. But if you imagine her going to the cops to talk about it, Unless she gets Joseph Cotton somehow, they're going to go, so you took your- So he pranked you. So he pranked you? Like the worst possible interpretation of what happened is he pranked you? And you're like, well, yes, but like also I think he's upstairs in the rafters and also I think he's turning the lights down and like he makes very strange decisions on which servants to hire. Or you're going to have somebody who says- Oh, so you actually are out of your mind and you don't remember doing these things that he says that you do. No wonder he's asking to keep you home. He's embarrassed. Right. This goes on for a while and is almost unbearable. If it lasted 10 more minutes, I don't think I would like this movie. Yeah, I have to say that for me, this movie was extremely activating, bordering on triggering, and the end of the movie makes it worth it. Yeah. But huge trigger warning for if you have ever been involved in an emotionally abusive relationship be it with family or a romantic partner or whatever. Yeah. Be in a semi-good place at the very least when you watch this and push through to the end. Yeah. Once Joseph Cotton shows up in the townhouse, it becomes less unbearable. Because the moment where he goes, did you notice that the, the gaslight just went down? The relief on Ingrid Bergman's face is actually the thing where I texted you, like, if she had not won Best Actress, I would fucking riot. And I felt it so hard, too. Yeah. (laughs) 
because she has, of course, been trying to get the servants or somebody or just anybody she can talk to to go like, hey, is something weird going on? And he has, of course, created such a bubble around her that it just never works until Joseph Cotton comes in and disrupts that bubble. And he puts the pieces together that who Charles Boyer says he is, is actually this guy named Sergius Bauer, who, of course, murdered the aunt in an attempt to get some jewels that she, honestly, I'm a little unclear, had for some reason. They were given to her by a duke or something. It really doesn't matter. No, all that matters. They're very famous jewels that would be, I guess, difficult to steal if you couldn't have some sort of reason to have them. Right. But of course, you know, if you marry the woman who is the jewel owner's heir... And then have her committed, now you have reason to own them. She has been hearing someone walking around upstairs for the whole movie. And this is where we learned that when they first get to the townhouse, goes like, you know, you should put the past behind you. Let's put all of her belongings up in the attic. So that you just don't think about your aunt anymore as you wander through her townhouse every day. Because that'll work. But this, of course, was not for her benefit in the first place. It was so that he could wander around up there and look for these jewels in her belongings. And all of the gaslighting is about making her not trust her senses so that she doesn't figure this out, essentially. And also so that he can have her declared mentally incompetent and therefore, you know, own these very famous, very expensive jewels. Right. Though you get the sense from Joseph Cotton... Joseph Cotton says that he has a wife back in mainland Europe. So you get the sense that he knows that this con isn't going to last forever and is probably going to go on the run with the jewels. Anyway, doesn't matter. Point is, Joseph Cotton comes in, confirms to her that she's not insane. God, the moment where he's like, oh, someone's wandering around up there. And she's like, well, who is it? And he's like, you know exactly who it is. Like, say who it is. Say. Right. Is also amazing. Because she goes, no, I don't. I. Why would. Why would he? Why would he do that? She is very good. God, she's so good. And the whole last 20 minute stretch is so good. Because Joseph Cotton then leaves to go get back up. And Charles Boyer comes back in and tries to gaslight her one last time. And it works because the servant kind of goes along with it. Right, right. I think for her own safety. Yeah, but I don't know what it is. And I almost died. Yeah. In that moment where Charles Boyer comes in and says, oh, what detective? And calls the maiden and the maid says, oh, yeah, there is no detective here. She literally let him in the door. I mean, there is no question yeah. that she has seen him, interacted with him and spoken to him. She knew that he was there. And the other thing that we know is that Joseph Cotton has gone outside to wait at the corner because he's expecting Charles Boyer to come down again from the roof and come back around to the front of the house. But this time, for the first time ever, he comes down the stairs, the inside stairs from the attic. So I just thought, oh my God, he's going to kill her. Yeah. He's going to kill her and she's going to die thinking that she hallucinated this detective. And I can't. But luckily that does not occur. Joseph Cotton comes back in for reasons, question mark. But thank God, because he manages to overpower Charles Boyer and tie him up in the attic. 
And then Ingrid Bergman insists on being left alone with him and just gives a hell of a final scene where he tries to convince her that this has all been a big misunderstanding and she should cut him free. Uh, She should let him go and tells her that there is a knife nearby (laughs) and she picks up the knife and goes, what knife? I don't have a knife in my hand. Why would you say I have a knife in my hand? Oh, oh, this one? And drops it and goes like, oh, I've lost it. I just, I've, I'm I'm always losing things. You're always telling me I'm losing things. It is amazing. It is a little wish fulfilling, but you know what? Like, good. I feel like everybody who has been through anything like this deserves that. <laughs> deserves to see that moment where they have their comeuppance, where all of the things that they use to manipulate someone have been turned back around on them. And it's very satisfying. <laughs> God. She also, in this scene, finds the brooch, which is the very first thing that he tells her she lost when he starts gaslighting her. (laughs) She finds that he has hidden it up here in the attic. And just, again, just Ingrid Bergman is so fucking good in this movie. Because her reaction to finding that, it isn't that she's about to let him go and then she finds the brooch and it snaps her out of it. It's that she is already ready to murder the guy and going off on a whole thing and then finds it. And that's a whole new level that she gets on. Like she goes super Saiyan on just wanting to give this guy shit. And it's great. (laughs) That whole final scene is, if you feel emotionally up for it, why you should watch this movie. It's good before then, but the payoff is just so satisfying It's just that you have to sit through a lot of a man being emotionally abusive to a woman to get there. And I really think you do have to sit through it. It is one of those things where we can't go just watch the last 10 minutes of this movie. You have to kind of watch the movie to understand how good Ingrid Bergman's performance is in the last 10 minutes of this movie. And, well, I can't make the judgment for you that it is worth it. It is very satisfying filmmaking, and it is very satisfying acting. Oh, yeah. If you think you're up to it, to watch it, you will not be disappointed by the ending, certainly. But it is also, I mean, we started calling this gaslighting for 80 years for a fucking reason. Yeah. Like, it does a really good job of putting you in this guy being emotionally abusive. And specifically making her question reality by doing and saying things that lead her to believe that she's out of her mind because what she has actually experienced, she is being told is not what she has experienced. And it is, it's really, really hard to watch. Yeah. I mean, unquestionably, it is very difficult to watch. But I would say that the moment where someone believes her is so palpably relieving yeah and the moment where she gets to have her vengeance is extremely satisfying and something that most people will never actually get and seeing it play out is also very satisfying i'll say it is worth it again if you are in the emotional headspace to experience it but it's tough it is definitely tough and i would absolutely not judge anyone who felt that they couldn't go through it and there are pieces of media in the world that i think are very well done that i would not recommend anyone experience like the book american psycho i think is brilliantly written no one should ever read that book (laughs) yeah 
It is not worth it. And I feel like this is. I will say, I mean, for one, I'm a dude, so I don't have to contend with the world not believing me when I say a super obvious thing is happening. And so I had an easier time with this. But I also think that the Academy is not always the best at picking movies that are doing some real shit. Like, I think they kind of prefer that you green book it, prefer that you wrap something this real up in a neat little bow by the end of it in a way that this kind of does. But I think the way that it really does that is this is a thriller. It really follows the beats of a thriller. It is safely in that genre zone, which for me, at least, provided a little bit of a buffer against how real shit gets in this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I do want to say that in its favor. I don't want to scare people away from this movie too much because I think it is very, very good. But I do also want to give people fair warning that if you don't think you want to deal with an hour and change of watching a guy be emotionally abusive and having it work, more power to you. That's that's a perfectly respectable choice. Absolutely. You know, some people don't like watching horror movies, and I don't judge them for that either. And this is, in its way, a psychological horror movie. Yeah. We didn't quite get into at length how good Joseph Cotton is, which is the only other thing I want to talk about. Joseph Cotton is the second lead in the canonical best movie of all time. And then I think he kind of disappears from film history to some degree. He's in a couple of movies in the 40s and then goes on to be kind of a TV guy in the 50s which is sort of an era of TV we don't talk about and haven't archived particularly well outside of a few counterexamples. And so I think this is just interesting because this part as written is super boring and actually kind of creepy in its own way and doesn't demand somebody this good, somebody who manages to go, you know, I had a crush on this lady's aunt a long time ago, And just something's just not sitting right with me about her husband. And having that not be the creepiest thing in the world, having that come off, like you say, as very sweet and very genuine and very like, listen, I'm not going to cross any lines here, but this guy seems like a weirdo. And I just kind of want to just, 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 just look into it. Now I'm doing it for effect. (laughs) But like, that's kind of what he does. He is playing a cop. He's playing a cop with a crush on our female lead. He's playing a cop with a crush on our female lead because she looks like her dead aunt. And yet you never think anything except this guy is really forthright and smart and doing the right thing. Well, the thing I can say about him that makes it not creepy is, one, the way that they meet, which they don't even really meet is that he happens to be at the Tower of London on the day when Charles Boyer takes her to the Tower of London, right? That's it. And he just sees her and goes, oh my god, that looks just like this famous opera singer I had a crush on when I was a little boy. And something seems off, but it also makes him think again about this murder case that was never solved. So that's what brings it back into his brain. (laughs) And he doesn't stake out her house he does ask the beat cop who is dating angela lansbury's character if you know if anything if he sees anything if anything happens then sees her again at this event where the stolen watch gaslighting happens and sees her reaction there and that's the point where he realizes that something is really wrong and goes to investigate 
But he never hits on her. Yeah. Even after he saves her, there's no like, well, cool, I'm a grown up now and you look like this lady I had a crush on when I was 11. Uh, and also I saved you. Did I mention I saved you? White Knight. Hey, I get to do whatever I want. He doesn't make a move on her at all. He genuinely seems concerned with her well-being and not just he has a thing for her. Well, I mean, okay. So I'm going to contradict you slightly, but support your general point, which is there's kind of a flirty energy to that last scene on the roof. The like, I'm going to be here for you in the morning because this has been a really rough night for you thing. Isn't we're definitely going to bone, but is like, you know, if you would like a husband who isn't a gaslighting creep. Certainly that is what the neighbor who listens to too many true crime podcasts thinks is going on when she comes up and sees them both, which is the sort of blackout joke. Yeah, I think she's awful. (laughs) She is, but she's awful in the best way. Because at the very end when he is... He gives her a hug. Right. He gives her a hug. She comes in and is like, oh my. But she also, uh, when the conflict escalates and they start fighting each other and rush up to the attic, the older servant runs downstairs to get the cop. And the beat cop runs in and leaves the door open when he and Angela Lansbury run inside. And then this nosy neighbor just wanders in to see what's going on. Because she's always wanted to see the house. Yeah. And it's so great in that thing we talk about, like, minor characters having their own inner lives. But her inner life is she's a terrible person. (laughs) She's just awful. But the, the point I was trying to make about Joseph Cotton generally is... You get the sense that he wants to have a very small, genuinely not creepy interaction where he just goes, you know, I saw your aunt once and I thought she was just the most lovely woman alive and I'm so sorry about what happened and here's her glove back, which he does it in Act 3. And then it is the fact that Charles Boyer is acting so weird about this small ask that escalates things. He's not the one escalating things into this weird zone. He wants to be normal, but Charles Boyer is like, why would you want to say, what's going on? What did, my wife can see no one. And it's like, okay, well, now I need to know why she can see no one. What are you doing? Right. That keeps him from being creepy. And I think that is so down to his performance that you have to read his motive into so much stuff. Because on paper, it's just like, he had a crush on her aunt, and so now he's asking a lot of follow-up questions. He's giving a better and more nuanced performance than that. And with that, we should probably rate this movie, right? Yeah, I'm 10. Yeah, fair. 10. It's perfect. Yeah. Even though it's hard to watch, there is not a beat out of place it is perfect so i watched this movie with my wife and we started doing a bit whenever there were because it occasionally like cuts away to joseph cotton or cuts away to the neighbor so you're not constantly in the torture house (laughs) you're not constantly in the torture but you're also not constantly in the fucking lighting scheme of the townhouse Mm. and so whenever you come back to that lighting scheme because there's this sort of large, narrow staircase like there is in London townhouses, and lighting is constantly coming up from the floor below or down from the floor above at these just incredibly dramatic angles. And so Nikki and I started casually going to each other, hey, do you think Guillermo del Toro ever watched this movie? (laughs) 
just every time there would be another shot of just the exact lighting from Crimson Peak, we'd go like, you know who would who would enjoy this movie? I bet is Guillermo del Toro. If he'd ever seen it, maybe someone should recommend it to him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the lighting is amazing. The cinematography. I'm just sort of reminded as I'm going through in my head, like, oh yeah, is it a ten across the board? The lighting is amazing. The set decoration is amazing. The costumes are amazing. This movie is great. Yeah, it is very difficult to watch for certain reasons, but it is incredibly well made. And in a weird way, I almost think Charles Boyer is giving the worst performance in the movie simply because he doesn't need to try. It is so in his wheelhouse. It feels totally effortless. Yeah. that There is just no stretching as an actor for him. It is just that somebody went, hey, your natural energy is actually this? way creepier <laughs> than what you're usually cast as. Like, he usually has to kind of fight against that there is something sort of creepy about how charming he is. Oh, yeah. He's always the big, sexy, romantic French guy. I'd never bought it. This is right. This part is right for him. I've bought it to some degree, but I've always thought the performance was about toning down the sort of naturally malevolent tone that's there a little bit. There's always 15% of menace in just like charming foreign guy who sweeps you off your feet. You know, what? actually, I've. it's not that I haven't bought it. It's that I have always thought that that was an outdated cliche. Yeah. That... The charming foreign guy is a little bit sinister. And it's like, or, you know, maybe that's just a creepy old timey way of looking at stuff. And it's not that romantic for a guy to be somewhat frightening. And no, it's just that Charles Boyer is somewhat frightening. I want to be clear that I'm not arguing that all charming Frenchmen are naturally evil. (laughs) No, of course not. (laughs) In a film, the energy he gives off There's a sense of you lose control around him that is slightly menacing in this cliched part he usually plays. And he usually has to sort of reassure the audience and also the female lead of like, oh, no, 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 no. It's okay. I'm on the side of the angels. This is true love. And in this one, it's like, you have no control. I'm the one who is in control. And you're like, oh, shit. Fuck. We get we're in too deep. We got to get out now. And, uh, yeah, it's real, real good. Watch it. Watch it unless you feel like you're not up to it. Yeah. And boy, oh boy, do I not understand right now. I guess on a certain level I understand, but the Academy, we're two movies in this year, right? Have we? It's just going my way. Right. Yeah. Which, it's so weird to be in week two and know the Academy didn't choose correctly in this way. I know for a fact that we've watched two movies and the one that won Best Picture is in second place right now. By a large margin. Yeah. They definitely did not pick correctly. The question is, what is the movie that should have won? And, you know, right now, since we've only watched two, we know it is, of those two, the one that didn't win. (laughs) Right. But we also have, God, is next week Double Indemnity? It is, yeah. (laughs) Which is also apparently very good. Yes. Think we're going to have a one-two punch of... Of really intense noir films. <laughs> really intense noir films that are... Better than the much, one Much, much better than what <laughs> one... Yeah. 
We will see. I mean, there have been times where there were movies we had been led to believe were excellent, and then we watched them and thought, what is this dog shit? So, you know, I'm not going to believe Double Indemnity is good until we watch it. <laughs> That's fair. And, like, the bad news is, well, is that poster good, or is that poster just the most noir poster that's ever noir? This poster is not good. Okay. What is the disembodied, like, bust of some guy in a fedora on, on a totally nothing background? You're right. This poster is not good, but the font work on Double Indemnity makes up for everything bad about the poster. <laughs> That is a whole lot of drop shadow, so... It is, but it is just like, you hear in your head the exact way you should say double indemnity from the font choice and the drop shadow, where it's just like, double indemnity. Yes, that is actually how you should pronounce it based (laughs) on the poster. (laughs) No question about that. So tune in next week to find out if this is one of the movies we have been led to believe is excellent or actually in the running for what should have been best picture over going my way. Yeah. And until then... This was a terrifying portrait of emotional abuse that just happens to be one of the best pictures ever made. Was it, David? What? What? Was it was it really what? David? What? I no, I wait I think it no, Susan, I'm pretty sure that it was. Why would you say that like that? I mean okay it was. You're right. I I can't okay. I can't do this. For oh very thank long. god. Oh thank god. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm very bad oh. at this. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Uh, I'm not going to stop recording until I say this. Here's the thing. I genuinely, for a second, didn't know why you said was it, and did, in fact, have a brief moment of going, what? What did I miss? What happened? Did you not hear me? What's what's going on? (laughs) Oh my god, I'm so sorry! (laughs) Uh, Like, I had a brief moment of being gaslit confusion. (laughs) See, it's very dangerous. Don't make people second-guess things like that. No good, very bad, don't do it. Okay, goodbye, everybody. (laughs) Bye. Bye. If I were not mad, I could have helped you. Whatever you had done, I could have pitied and protected you. But because I am mad, I hate you. Because I am mad, I have betrayed you. And because I am mad, I'm rejoicing in my heart without a shred of pity, without a shred of regret, watching you go with glory in my heart. Mr. Cameron, come! Come, Mr. Cameron, take this man away. Take this man away.